Well, I don't know about you all, but uh, last night I was shot, like not with a gun, but tired. I mean, the kind of tired you get where your whole body kind of aches, and you, you, you lay down in bed and you start to get that little twitch, you know, because you're so tired, and your, your brain is going, is this it? Can we, is this it? Like, we're going to sleep now? This is cool. And then you can't fall asleep because you're so tired. I mean, it was, it was a week for sure. There was a lot of early mornings, there was a lot of late nights this week, and then uh, it was somebody's idea, the calendar, I guess, to have Christmas on a Saturday, and then it's just like, my brain didn't even know what to do with that, but it was a delightful time, and, and Melanie and I did one of the most favorite things in the entire world when I feel like that, is go to bed at like 10 after 8, and it was, it was great. I slept like a baby seahorse at the bottom of the ocean, and... Uh, I woke up feeling renewed and fired up and wired up, ready to worship this morning. But you know what? I'm going to be tired tonight. It's a cycle, right? That we sleep, we have those moments, we wake up, we're rested, but then again, we're going to be tired, and then we're going to need more sleep. It's just like, I know you all ate yesterday, right? And there was a point in time where you're like, loosen that, you know, that button up here a little bit and sit down and watch some TV. But then I know by like 7 o'clock you were fishing around in the refrigerator for some of that leftover Christmas ham, right? So we eat the same way. We're full, but then we're, we're hungry again. It's funny how that works. You see, God has woven into creation the reality of renewal, the need for it. We eat, we're full, but then we're fishing around for food again. We sleep and we're renewed, but we need to then sleep again because we're tired. God has designed this as he did the rest of his glorious creation, the rest and the need, the need for rest, the need for renewal, a dependence on him in order to be sustained in what we do. So what does Isaiah have to say about being sustained? Let's head back over to Isaiah chapter 40. Hopefully you are still there as Bob read it for us. Last week we looked at Isaiah 11 and how the Savior has come bringing the Holy Spirit, bringing justice, and how one day he will return and bring eternal power and justice in his kingdom. I hope you've enjoyed Advent in Isaiah. I know technically today is not actually Advent because Christmas was yesterday, so technically by the, the church calendar, Advent is now over, but it just kind of felt right to spend one more week in Isaiah and look at, at I wanted to consider one more aspect of the Savior that I think we need to hear right now the aspect of a Savior who sustains us. I realize I've been jumping around a lot, but I did have a plan, right? We didn't march through Isaiah like we're marching through Matthew, which we'll get back to next week. I had a plan. I wanted to jump around in Isaiah to prove a point. I wanted to show you the progression of the gospel. A Savior needed in week one. A Savior promised week two. A Savior delivered up in week three. A Savior to return in week four. And now this week, hopefully... We will see a Savior who sustains. And again, Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is a masterpiece of God's character and who he is. Let's just look at a couple different parts of Isaiah 40 before we get to our main passage. Look at how it starts in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. We see this starting Isaiah, if you remember context, right? Three biblical rules of interpretation. Context, context, context. 
If you had attended midweek, shameless plug, it'll start up again in January. We went through Isaiah, Isaiah 40. The last part is where they are in exile. And so picture this. The defeated nation of Israel. Judgment has happened. Israel is destroyed. Families are demolished. Civilization as it was known is gone. Hope seems obliterated. And in the midst of that, God says, comfort. God is speaking comfort to his people. He says, I will bring renewal from this. He goes on to the chapter, in the chapter rather, to promise this renewal through the redemption of the Messiah, who will be this Elijah-like figure, saying, prepare the way for the Lord, which we see fulfilled, of course, in John the Baptist. And then the, the, he reminds them that the word of God, his commands, his decrees, his character, that will last forever, he says. Then in the bulk of the chapter, in 9 through 24, it's a masterpiece which God poetically describes his character and his attributes, answering the main question, who is like me? And the answer, no one. No one is like God. He says, who's measured the oceans and the skies? Who is his consultant for wisdom? Where did he learn justice? Answer, no one, nowhere. No one taught him any of that because he is God, the Almighty the sovereign creator. He sits high above earth, causing his decrees and his will to take place on the world below. And then we get to verse 25. He says, then, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power? Not one is missing. Again, the, an the question, who will you compare me to? And the answer is no one. God can be compared to no one. No one is like him in power and wisdom and authority. I love, I think it's Psalm 90, where God says to Israel, here's your problem. Here's what you did wrong. You thought I was like you. I'm not. I'm completely and totally other. Separate category. If you had to break down all the world into two categories, right? You have God the creator, and then you have the created things. That's it. That's it. We're in here, okay? We're not the God part. We're the created things. By nature, by default, the created things worship the creator, right? You ever pray and, and just ask and say thanks to God for creating me? <laughs> like, hey, you, I didn't have to exist. You, you, you created me. Thank you for my life. Thank you for my breath. And, and God, through Isaiah, gives another indicator of his power. And he says, listen, if you want a reminder, at night, look up. Look at the stars, he says. He says, question, who created these stars? How do they come, yeah, how do they come out at night? How, how do these stars just all of a sudden come out? And how are they arranged like they are? Like, I'm not an astronomy nerd, but I understand there's patterns and stuff, right? Who arranges these things? Answer, God. No one else. How many stars are there? Scientists have no idea. They don't. Seriously, Google it. I did. One source estimated there's 200 billion trillion stars. That number makes no sense to me whatsoever. It's like... 11 gajillion. Like, I don't even know what that means. Another author puts it this way. There are more than 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and it's estimated that there are 125 billion galaxies in the universe. Huh? 
the total number of stars is then estimated at 1 times 10 to the 22nd power, or 10 billion trillions. Yeah, I don't know what that means either. Can we just stop and think that as much as our modern society and culture and science and all of that knows, there's still stuff that they don't know and is impossible. And they can't even come close to the depth of the knowledge of our God, his own creation. They can't get their arms around it when we're not supposed to. And it's a fraction of the power and the magnitude of our God. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, Here's a good practice. Go outside at night and look up. Marvel at the vastness of our God. He calls them out by name. He arranges the night sky. This is our God. So shouldn't we trust him then? Look at verse 27. It says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, and say, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? In other words, Isaiah is asking, okay, so I set the ground rules here. You understand God's power and creation. And again, later, if you have time to read through the whole chapter of Isaiah 40, you see who our God is. Isaiah says, so if that's the wonder and the power of God, why, O Israel, are you saying he doesn't see what I'm going through? Why, possibly, O Israel, are you saying he doesn't understand? He doesn't think I'm important. He doesn't get it. CSB puts it like this. Why do you assert my way is hidden from the Lord and my claim is ignored by God? Isaiah says, after everything in this whole chapter that I just laid down about who God is, you would say God doesn't see me? You would say God doesn't understand what I'm going through? Isaiah says, can't we trust such a God with our lives? One commentator refers to it as the godlessness of such despondency. They've forgotten God in the midst of their despair. I'll put it this way, hoping I've set enough foundation here so it doesn't sound too trite. But God can be trusted. God can be trusted. Here's what Isaiah is really saying. You fail to trust God because you fail to understand who God is. That's what's happening. Because if we dwelled more on who God is, as the Bible reveals himself to be, we would naturally trust God such a God, because that's who he says he is. Think of it this way. Our level of trust in God has everything to do with our proper understanding of God. Sometimes we don't trust God, or we don't understand what he's doing, or we don't whatever, because maybe we're not really aligned with who the Bible says God is. Maybe we have some sort of, and Christians can do this too, our own little idea of who God is our own little creation of God in our minds. This is the standard for God. And if you need to know who God is, a great place to start is Isaiah 40. Remember who our God is. Scripture is clear. There's no comparison. There's no entity more powerful. There's no one more wise, more knowledgeable, more just. He knows all things. He controls all things because he created all things and he's holding all things together by the word of his power. But besides that, Besides the things that we can see with our eyes, besides creation that we can go and look at the stars, we see one more way in which we see God's supreme power and wisdom and majesty. And that is in the face of Jesus Christ, his son. Jump over to Colossians. I think I put it in your bulletin. 
Colossians chapter 1, one of the most Christocentric books in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15, says, He is the image of the invisible God. It's a good place to start, right? Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation because for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the perfect reflection of the power and supremacy and wisdom and mercy and grace and wrath and everything of God. And so when we want to know more about who our God is, we look at his word, we look at creation, but we also most certainly need to look at Jesus Christ. He is the perfect reflection of God. And he does even that by reconciling us to himself, as it said in Colossians, through the blood of his cross. For many of us, too, it's, it's been a week. Some of us, it's been quite the several weeks or the several months. There are those of us who are going through very tough seasons right now. Some of us are at home watching on live stream because our Christmas just got blown up by COVID or something. And some of us are dealing with divorce or caring for aging parents or grieving lost loved ones or physical sickness and injury or chronic illness and cancer. The list goes on and on. And church, I can think of nothing more encouraging to say than this, that God does hear us that he does see us, that he does care, and we can trust him. We can trust him. This is where we do well to surely anchor ourselves in Scripture to see how the men and women of Scripture anchored themselves in the character and attributes of God by trusting in him. We could also look to our early church fathers, the, the reformers, the Puritans, to see how the saints before us had persevered through adversity by trusting in such a God. We must tighten our grip on God when the winds of adversity blow stronger. We have to. Let's face it. Some adversity comes from our own doing. We reap what we sow. But sometimes trials and adversity are just thrust into our laps. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed and exhausted no matter how the trials came about. But Isaiah goes on to encourage us what to do when we feel like throwing in the towel. And he starts again by reminding us of who God is. Look at verse 28 of Isaiah 40. It says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might he increases strength first isaiah reminds us of god's greatness and there's a little bit of prophetic sass in here he says i'm confused israel in light of everything that i just said in light of everything you know about god everything that i've highlighted before why are you not trusting him what do you think it is that god doesn't know what do you think it is that god doesn't see what do you think it is that God's not working his plan? He says, 
Haven't you heard? Don't you know? God is eternal. God is limitless in his resources and in his power. There's nothing out of his reach. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's nothing he cannot do. And think about it. God is never overwhelmed. God is never stressed. God is never out of answers. God is never tired. I know. I can't understand it either. As, as wrapped up as we can get in life and our trials, God is never that way. He is never that way. He's never stressed. He's never overwhelmed. The number one answer I get when I ask you guys how you're doing is tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. I know. I understand. If that's you, be encouraged. There are lots more tired people out there as well. But also be encouraged. God can be trusted. Why? Well, for one thing, he never gets tired. When we feel tired, when we feel overwhelmed, you know, someday we're married, then we, we kind of rely on our spouse to balance us out a little bit. It's kind of a bad day when me and Mel are both tired and stressed out, right? One, we need one of us to, like, you know, balance the other one. But we do have those days, right? God's never tired. God's never stressed out. And so we balance ourselves uh, ultimately by going to our Heavenly Father and immersing ourselves in who He is. And the more we actively trust Him, the less tired we will be. In order for us to survive these times when we're tempted to be overwhelmed, we've got to reach out and grab onto something outside of ourselves. That's the lie of our culture, right? Lie of our culture says, dig down deep. You can do it. It's all you. You got it. You're great inside. Be your best little life you now, whatever it is, right? And we say, no. Bible says, nope, I got nothing. I'm out of gas. I go to him. I go to him. I rely on him and his character because through him, he will be my strength. Look at verse 30. It says, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall feel or fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Ah, yes, the verse that lost, launched a thousand coffee mugs and pictures in our homes with eagles on them, right? Let's, let's rescue this a little bit from churchianity, shall we? Or at least try to. It says we will all get tired and drained. We will all get overwhelmed. And it says not just old people, even young people. Even young people get tired. And then What? Isaiah is telling us that if we wait on the Lord, our strength will be renewed. Another way of translating this word in the Hebrew is exchange. In other words, when we trust the Lord, he exchanges our exhaustion for his strength. We go to him empty, and he fills us up with strength. And then we fly, we soar, we, we will run and not be weary, we will walk and not faint, do you all feel that in your bones as much as I do? Like, we'll have those days where we can kind of be unaffected by life around us. In our souls, we will cling to our Heavenly Father. And so I'll say it this way. Trusting God exchanges our weakness for His strength. Trusting God exchanges our weakness for His strength. The world and its effects of sin have a way of draining us. That's why we periodically need to renew ourselves. How? By reconnecting with our Heavenly Father. Recharging, which we will do in the presence of our God. We simply go to God empty and we walk away full. 
because we are exchanging our weakness for his perfect strength. That's why we come to church on the first day of the week, right? I was having this discussion with Steve before, like calendar set up, like Sundays like starts the first week. So we, we go to church on the Lord's Day, right? And now we're recharged and we're able to look at the week afterwards from that perspective. Many of us, if our souls were an iPhone, I think this is what our souls would, would look like a lot of times. Right? We feel this. We feel that in our bones. We have seasons like this, church, and we will all have seasons like this. The danger is when seasons become lifestyles. This is a picture of a heart that needs renewal, that needs recharging. And Isaiah says this comes from waiting on the Lord. We hate waiting. I hate waiting. I'm one of those guys that's like, if there's a line at the gas pumps, like, I will go to the place without the line at the gas pumps, even if it's more money, because it's worth it to not wait. We hate waiting. The biblical word for wait also means to hope and to trust. And biblical hope is different than human hope. It's not like, man, I hope I get those sweet socks I had on my Amazon Christmas list. It's rather... Biblical hope is a confident expectation of what is to come. We are confidently trusting in our God. That's biblical hope. Not necessarily hoping that things get better, right? Not necessarily just hoping that things get better, but hoping in the one who makes things better, who makes redemption out of seasons of being overwhelmed because of who he is. The Gospel Transformation Study Bible had this helpful note. When we are exhausted, when we wonder how we can continue, Isaiah reminds us not to look at ourselves and our own resources. Instead, we turn our eyes to the all-knowing, sustaining, and creating God who does not faint or grow weary, but rather gives power to the faint. Strength from God in this context comes not from self-improvement, but from waiting on the Lord who promises to sustain us that we may make this pilgrim journey. And so let's get practical. How do we actively trust and wait on God? He'll give us two categories and a bunch of things in those categories. The categories are preparation and practice. And I know a lot of you just tuned out. Really, Pastor Mike? Come on. We just had Christmas, now you're going to make me work with preparation and practice. Merry Christmas. I don't want either of those things. I just want to plug in and let my heart be charged up and then go on my merry way, right? Sounds like it's work. Well, it is work. It's soul work. And it's one that enables us to be firmly connected to the source of power and strength. First, preparation. One of my jobs as pastor is to prepare you to suffer, is to prepare you to have hard times is to, to understand that the possibilities out there, that our lives are just not going to be hunky-dory all the time, that we are going to have trials we're going to have to face. One pastor reminds us that anyone in the room can have their lives dramatically changed by a phone call. And that's the truth. So we would do well to prepare. Sin is alive and well, and it affects us all. This is the essence of a biblical worldview. Right? Not the ostrich head in the sand biblical worldview right? that says, I'm a king's kid, therefore nothing can happen to me because I'm blessed and I'm going to be rich and have hair and a tan and whatever else. Right? That's, that's wrong. That's not biblical. We understand that sin is alive and well and we are not immune to it. If things are going great for you right now, praise God. But no, in the back of your mind, this will not always be the case. And prepare. 
for one, for one thing, it eliminates a heck of a lot of shock when it actually does happen, right? Because I know that, I know that conversation. It's like, my life just blew up. It's like, okay, how are we going to walk through this? Well, I can't believe my life just blew up. Didn't you think that was a possibility? We live in a fallen world. It's going to happen eventually. Were you ready for this? Were you spiritually prepared for this? First Peter, <laughs> First Peter 4.12 kind of gets in our faces a little bit on that. First Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, like in other words, friends, loved ones, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's like, ah, my life blew up. Peter's like, uh-huh. Don't be surprised. Sin is alive and well. So, church, prepare by having in mind the difficulties will come, that renewal will be needed. And second, practice. Actually walk it out. Actually practice renewal. And I'll say the first thing under that is don't overlook the physical. Let's start by reminding ourselves that we're commanded by God in his word to honor our bodies. The spiritual is connected to the physical. It means that we practice, we need to practice the physical disciplines as, a, as well as the spiritual disciplines. Are we being diligent with diet and exercise and rest? So many of us have bodies that are working against our spirits because we neglect all of those things. I know, great timing for Pastor Mike to preach on eating right after we just stuffed our faces for the last three weeks, right? And there's no end in sight because there's leftovers and cookies and everything else going on at home. I get that. I understand that. But commit yourself to getting on track with the physical disciplines that God has given us with. It's, it's, it's part of our responsibility as Christians. But also, we need to prioritize and practice the spiritual disciplines. January's coming. I love January. Me too, right, Lily? I love January because it's routine. We get back to normal. We start fresh. And I would challenge you to start fresh with a good spiritual discipline routine. Go to bed early. Wake up early. Read the Bible. Soak in it. Meditate it on it. Memorize it. There just so happens to be a brand spanking new five-day Bible reading plan at the back table. I made like 50 copies. I would love them all to be gone. Read your Bible. If you haven't read the whole Bible, there's a great place to start. Read the whole Bible. There's even a part of that plan back there. Just read the New Testament. If you're like, I, me and Leviticus, no. Maybe next year, but I'll just read the New Testament this year. Read the whole Bible. Commit to being spiritually disciplined in 2022. That's part of practicing. We prepare, but we also practice. But also spend time in prayer. Husbands. Lead your wife in prayer. Pray with your wives. Lead family devotions. Start spiritual conversations with your kids. Prioritize prayer meeting at the church, which is next week at 6 o'clock upstairs in the office. All of us read solid books by old dead guys. Read the Valley of Vision like I read at the Christmas Eve service. Read Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. I think there's one or two copies back there. Join a Bible study or a care group. Be known and be known with others. Encourage each other in your spiritual journeys. Get serious about your spiritual growth in 2022. Why? Because when you suffer, that's what you're going to fall back on. You need to have something in the tank. 
You need to be grounded and rooted in who God is, and you need to be ready to call upon it. When fiery trials come upon us, this is all part of trusting God. Maybe kill those sins that have been dogging us for the last couple years. Talk to somebody about it. Confess it with them. Get accountable. Grow and change. It's all part of trusting God. Jerry Bridges puts it this way in his book, Trusting God, which if you need a good book to read, that's a good book to read. Trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold of the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. We cling to our God, especially during adversity. I'm reminded of Jacob wrestling with the Lord at the banks, and he says, I will not let you go. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. We have to have that attitude in suffering. I am not going to let go of you, God, because I know where else am I going to go? You are all that I have. You are the one who is in control, not me. I submit myself to you, so I'm going to actively trust you. Through preparation and practice, we are waiting on the Lord, and we can see him exchange our weakness for his strength. We hear the words, wait on the Lord, and we think it's just maybe continuing to just slog through whatever situation we're in until it gets better. That's not the biblical idea of waiting on the Lord. Waiting is active trusting in the God who can be trusted, and we exchange our weakness for his strength. And so here's the big idea. We actively trust the Savior who sustains us. We actively trust the Savior who sustains us. That's part of what a Savior does, right? He saves. It's such fun on Christmas Eve. I love, I love, the ki- I love everything about the Christmas Eve service, but I love the kids where we'd sit down there and I'd tell the Christmas story and I asked them what a savior was and they all kind of looked at me with little question marks over their head, right? <coughs> like a savior sustains. Thank you. That's what a savior does. A savior saves and a savior sustains. And why do we need a savior? We need a savior because of sin. I asked the kids on Christmas Eve what a Savior was and why we need a Savior. And they said right away, because of sin. We also have to be very careful here. Sometimes we can reduce Christ to the role of just the one we call upon when we need him. Like, my life has hit the fan, God. What are you, what are you doing? Are you, were you taking a break? Like, how would you let this happen? Let's go fix this now. Please, God. That's not our God. That's, that's, not, that's not who he is. Right? We, we can't, the danger is, the temptation is, we, we reduce Christ to the role of saving us only when we need his help. God, life is so hard right now. I need you. Please fix this. But we just don't need God to fix that. He's at work, church. He is in this with you, church. He is good and he can be trusted. Without the Savior, we are lost We are hopeless. The Savior, first and foremost, saves us from our sin that separates us from God. That's the first thing we have to realize. Many times when we're in adversity and trial, we then run to God, which is good, and yes, we should, and then things get better, and then we run away from the Savior again. It's like, okay, cool, thanks for helping me out. Uh, I got this from here. We need to remember that the Savior saves us from sin in the first place. We are lost without him. But we also realize that the Savior sustains us. Even after we're saved, 
We need to be sustained. You guys feel that? You guys understand that as Christians we need to be sustained? Or is everyone else's life pretty much good and perfect? We're just running on ourselves. Good. I got nervous for a minute there. We know this. We know this, don't we? We know that we need to be sustained. But yet we slip into those times of self-reliance, don't we? We slip into those times of not needing that time with our Lord Jesus, of not relying on who he is. Because Isaiah, what Isaiah is really saying here is that it's not from our own strength that any of this happens. That's the whole point. It's God. It's not us. God's the one who created the world. God's the one who sustains the world. God's the one who created us. God's the one who saves us. God's the one who sustains us. So we rely on him. We actively trust on him. It's God. We cling to God like our lives depended on it because they do. We trust in God, and that is not passive, that is active. And in that church, we are sustained. So once again, the big idea, we actively trust in the Savior who sustains us. We actively trust in the Savior who sustains us. Church, when we come to Christ, we come to Christ first because we understand who we are in the sense of needing a savior in the sense of being separated from God in that moment. We all have to have that Romans 7 moment where we get to God and we say, you know, woe is me. Woe is this wretched man. Who will save me from this body of death? We have to get to that moment. And then immediately Paul says, praise be to God, Jesus Christ. He is the one who saves me from this body of death. That's our moment. Then we depend on him. Church, continue to depend on him. Continue to understand he's the one that sustains us. Continue to prepare. Continue to practice the spiritual, the physical disciplines. We actively trust in the Savior who sustains us. And in those moments where we are going through those trials, those adversities, our Savior is right there with us. He's not somebody distant that we have to call in to help us. Why? Because he's still there all along. And he's good. And he is with us. And he is sovereign. And he can be trusted. And he will sustain you. It is my prayer, church, that we are sustained by our Savior as we close out 2021. As we look to the new year. And may this be for all of us a year of greater and deeper active trust and hope in Jesus the Savior who sustains. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, we know and we acknowledge that with every special time that we have, we know that there are people that are struggling in the midst of this time, whether it is grieving those that aren't here or whether it is going through our own trials, Lord. We pray especially for those who are, who are weighed down this morning and burdened with the things of life. We pray that you would sustain them. We know that you are good, and we know that you are all-powerful, and we know that you are at work, and that you are with them. Lord, we pray that you would show yourself to be as you are, faithful and true. Father, we pray that you will bring redemption in those situations, that you would bring a lightness, that, that they would be able to see that as they fill their hearts and exchange their weakness for your strength, that they would see that they are, in fact, soaring. They are, in fact, rising above. They are, in fact, being filled with strength and, strength and running and not being weary and walking and not fainting. And Lord, for those who are joyful this morning, let us remember 
Let us take a moment and look around and let us see those that are suffering, those that are weighed down. Would we strengthen them? Would we help them up? Would we point them to the Savior that understands and sustains? But Lord, would we also think in the back of our minds, I need to remain close to my Savior. I need to be grounded in the character and attributes of, of who you are. So that when it does come for me, when it is my turn for the fiery trial, I will be ready. And I will be trusting in the Savior who sustains. We give all glory and honor to you, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.